Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a topic-based episode for you. So today's topic was sent in by David Sanger. David was interested in time-restricted feeding as a tool to use in your dietary approach. So I wanted to do a little bit of a dive into it, both in terms of its implementation, generally speaking, its implementation in regards to things like weight loss, weight maintenance, uh, and then also performance too. A lot of folks listening here are endurance athletes. I know David runs ultra marathons. So this is something that is also a piece to his lifestyle. And I wanted to do a little bit of an overview of it and then possibly maybe some thoughts on uh, that I have personally about it or how I would implement it if I was doing it and things like that, because it does tend to be one of those topics where there are a lot of nuance in it in terms of both how you actually implement it. So there's multiple different ways to do a time-restricted feeding approach, as well as just how does it compare to something just like fasted in general. And then also how it's going to potentially impact the variables that you are personally most interested in. Because a lot of people are listening to this and thinking, well, my main goal here is X, whereas someone else's may be Y. And these type of things can sometimes impact whether this would be a good strategy or a bad strategy for you personally at the individual level. So I'll try to go over some specific situations in which certain variables would maybe indicate a different approach or uh, a lack of approach, I guess, in this case, if you're just trying to decide whether time-restricted feeding is something that you should ever consider or just kind of stick to a more standard framework of of feeding. So this, this topic is an interesting one, and it's one where I think has probably evolved quite a bit since I started following a low-carbohydrate diet a while back. And I actually did some videos on this on my personal YouTube channels a long time ago when I was kind of outlining my my approach to nutrition in terms of like how I position uh, carbohydrate quantity throughout the different phases of training. And I did another one just about uh, intermittent fasting or uh, fasted workouts and things like that in general. And back then my general advice was basically like, it's probably not a great idea. Um, and I kind of, I think my lens, I was looking at that through back then was probably a little more narrow in the sense that I was looking at it through the lens of you're at goal race weight, weight loss is not necessarily a, uh, an objective of yours or a variable that you're trying to target. And also, uh, not necessarily looking at it through a lifestyle preference lens where I do appreciate there are people out there who are at their goal weight. Maybe they got there through time restricted feeding or some other way, but for them, they find it much easier for them to stay consistent and maintain their maintenance weight through a process like time-restricted feeding. Whereas when they deviate from that approach, they find it not to be something they can sustain or stay where they're trying to be at. Um, and then you have people on the opposite end of that spectrum too, where like they try a time-restricted feeding approach and they have that opposite experience where that isn't something that is going to be sustainable for them. They can't stick to it or they try and they, they deviate from it often enough due to life circumstances and personal variables that it becomes something where it's just not necessarily worth it for them at the individual level because 
it's not something that they can sustainably continue and count on being consistent with. So with a lot of these things, I think that's one thing you should always be asking yourself when you're structuring a dietary pattern is one big question is like, can I do this for the rest of my life? Or if it's meant to be short term, ask yourself, once I do hit the goal that I'm going to try to achieve with this approach uh, being short term, what is the next step so that you're not left with uh, no answers or no path forward at that point. I'm going to keep the announcements really short for this one, but for those interested, if you want to support the show or check out the catalog of all the previous episodes, you can do that by going to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. If you're interested in coaching services or some of my pre-made plans, those can be found at zachbitter.com. If you want to help me grow the show, like an episode, please consider sharing it with your friends, family, and followers on social media platforms. If you're a listener to the show, please make sure you're subscribing on your favorite podcast listening platform. And then finally, if you're looking for an electrolyte supplement, my favorite and one of the show's primary sponsors is LMNT Electrolytes. You can get a free sample pack to try all of their flavors with a purchase by heading to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. All the links to that stuff is also in the show notes. Let's jump into time-restricted feeding here. When I was looking at some of the literature and some of the stuff about it, there seems to be some kind of general like templates that a lot of people tend to focus on over others. And some of these include what they call like a 5-2 protocol, which essentially is a setup where you're going to eat the way you normally would for five days. And then you're gonna have two days where you practice some form of fasting. And that can range. You know, some of them are like one of the more popular ones is like a five, two or five you're eating at maintenance. And then those two fasting days, you're not eating nothing those two days, but you're greatly restricting calories down to like five, 600 calories. Um, then you have, uh, an approach called alternate day fasting, where this kind of like the five, two approach is sort of a little bit different from one person to the next, but essentially it can be as much as you're eating a ton one day. And then the next day you are eating next to nothing, or in some situations, kind of like that five, two, a very, very reduced amount, like down to, you know, roughly 25% or so of what you would typically eat at maintenance. Either one of those is going to be a situation where you're going to want to ask yourself what your goal is there too, and how you structure it. Cause if your goal is weight maintenance, that means you're going to have to be a little more proactive in terms of how much you're eating on those feeding days, because you are accepting a framework in which there are days during the week where you're going to be drastically underfed. And a situation like that is going to oftentimes lead to weight loss. If you don't proactively consume more calories than you need on those days where you're feeding versus someone who says, Hey, I'm using this protocol because my doctor said I'm X pounds overweight and I would be much better off losing X number of pounds. And you see this as a vehicle at which is going to make that a little less effort, make the effort easier for you to, in order to do it, because you have these days where you're able to at least eat at maintenance or slightly above maintenance. And, uh, you can, with those breaks, essentially, you're able to sustain those drastically lower calorie days. So these are all preference things. Um, the most popular one, though, and I think the one that David was probably asking the most about is this, this 16-8 type of framework, which isn't a strict 16-8. This one gets, uh, gets pushed in either direction a little bit too. 16-8 just happens to be the framework where most people eat or most people find themselves doing when they're using this protocol, which is just 
they have an eight hour window during the day in which they're going to feed. And then they're going to have a 16 hour a day, which they're not going to feed. So when people deviate from this, but use this protocol, oftentimes they might be doing something like 24, where they have just a much smaller feeding window of four hours, or they go the opposite direction and do something closer to like, say 14, 10, or I've even seen 12, 12, which some people maybe will argue that's hardly even a fast. Um, I would maybe argue that, you know, if you look at just the average person, if they're eating pretty close up to when they go to bed at night and then they're eating first thing in the morning, you know, they might be as tight as like an eight, nine hour window of non-feeding. So a 12, 12 for that person would actually be an extended period of time. It's all going to be kind of based on your experience and kind of how you're breaking these things down. So Anyway, those are kind of some of the methods that tend to be focused on. There are some other ones too that aren't as much into the time-restricted, I think it's just time-restricted feeding timely, but it tends to be more what I would consider like fasting where you have a protocol like one meal a day where you're essentially say eating one really large meal and then you won't eat again until like roughly 24 hours after that the following day. And like all of these, that window in which you're eating can essentially be shifted anywhere. So there has been some recent studies that are just looking at um, the quality of the approach. And they do find that earlier day feeding windows tend to be a little bit better uh, for a variety of different reasons. I'm not going to get into those for this particular episode. I'm going to kind of move into more performance-based type stuff with this. Uh, and I'll, sh I'll talk about kind of how the window maybe would impact that a little bit more. Um, but if you're just thinking about this, not through the performance lend, but through the time restricted eating or like a 16, eight type protocol, um, as far as we know, with the information available to us, it seems that it's going to be slightly better if for you at the individual level, it makes no difference in terms of how it, you're able to sustain it moving that feeding window earlier today versus later in the day is probably going to be better for, for that approach. Um, all things created equal, like I said. So here's where we want to start with this. There's going to be a difference here in terms of what your goals are, uh, especially around things like muscle gain or preservation. Uh, so when we're looking at this through muscle gain and preservation, things to consider here are that you're going to optimize that by having the right amount of protein in your diet. So if you start under eating protein, that is going to be a big hit to your muscle gain and preservation. Uh, the high end of what is recommended is going to be around a gram per pound of body weight. So if you're someone who's like, I really want to guarantee that muscle gain or preservation is uh, something that I am really strict about, pushing up to that high end of the range is probably not a bad idea. And then beyond that, it's going to be optimized a little bit further with three to maybe four feedings per day spread out over three to four hours at approximately 30 grams of protein each meal. So the way to think about it is hitting the right amount is going to be the big step forward for this. And then if you're looking to really maximize this muscle gain preservation, so if you're something like you're a bodybuilder or you're an athlete who's trying to gain lean muscle mass, or if you find yourself restricting calories in order to lose weight, this might be a tool that you'll use in order to make sure as much of that lean mass is preserved. Doing that or hitting that protein total spread out three to four times per day with about three to four hours in between 
at about approximately 30 grams of protein per feeding is going to be the best way to keep protein muscle synthesis activated as much as possible. So when you look at it even further along, if you include any form of strength work with this, that also greatly helps it. In fact, if you include the strength work, you can be much more error prone with your protein totals a lot of times and still preserve a lot of that lean mass. Uh, so I think for someone whose goal is muscle gain preservation and they want to make sure they optimize every last little variable for that first hitting that upper range of protein, spreading it out and including strength work are going to be kind of those three big movers that are going to help you, uh, do that or achieve that goal the closest. Um, a couple other things just to note here, uh, to kind of reflect on the importance of a couple of those, like, especially the, the strength work stuff. When you do like a strength session, training session, your body can remain anabolic for up to 20 hours post-workout. Uh, that will trail off, though it's not like it, that signal stays up. As you probably gathered from that description I just gave, it starts to trail off at about six to eight hours. So you're not necessarily going to have that same response for that full 20 hours, but that just goes to show you the potency of something like a strength workout in terms of helping preserve that muscle mass. And, and this is even seen sometimes with uh, studies that look at like loss of weight too, where a lot of times when people are losing weight, you know, they're also losing lean mass and muscle mass. So someone with a, with a weight loss goal, you're going to be doing yourself a big favor in terms of preserving the weight that you want to keep and losing the weight you don't necessarily want, or you're trying to get rid of, um, by kind of following that, that protocol or paying attention to those type of things and making sure you are prioritizing some strength work in your, in your training protocol. All right. A lot of people listening to this podcast are endurance athletes. So you're like, okay, that's great. That's cool. That's fun to know. And if I ever decide to become a bodybuilder, I'll remember that, but I'm an endurance athlete. Where do these things land when it comes to endurance sport and things like that? It's not necessarily as important for endurance performance, although proper protein intake and likely some form of spacing it out is going to be beneficial, especially around things like speed work. It isn't going to be as big of a variable as it would be if muscle gain was your primary objective. Because at this point, lifestyle preferences in regards to what you're doing at the individual level, may you may find to be more sustainable long-term. Like that question I said before, like, can you do this your whole life is likely going to take priority over something like, how do I stack as much muscle on as possible? So once we get into endurance work, we also have to still continue to look at this through a couple of different lenses. Like I said, at the very beginning is you do have these two kind of conflicting things that go on, which is kind of performance versus weight loss or um, performance. And then are you, do you also have a goal of weight loss or is it maintenance? Because if you're looking at maintenance, you can really lean into that performance variable more effectively. Whereas if you have a goal of weight loss, oftentimes that is going to be something that can take away from some of the performance that you're able to put out. And it just makes sense. It's like you're giving your body less resources to do, uh, to be able to do the maximum amount of work your body can potentially tolerate and then recover from. So a lot of times when you're looking at those two variables, if you have them both, it's, it's probably best to prioritize one and then move to the next and prioritize it at a different time. So one way to maybe think about this would be if you have a weight loss goal and you have a lot of time uh, or your patient, what I would typically try to do would be try to meet that weight loss goal 
first and it's okay to still train and go through the different phases of training and really kind of learn that approach and do those things but just know that performance maybe will suffer a little bit based on what you would be able to do if you had already gotten that goal weight and then accept that okay once i get to my goal weight uh preferred like healthy weight that's that's ideal for your your performance then you can maybe shift away from that being a variable you're all that concerned about and focus almost purely on performance at that point and really try to see how how much you can push your body into that side of the that side of variables so when we look at weight loss with things like intermittent fasting uh, i found a meta-analysis that showed that intermittent fasting is going to be comparable to caloric energy restriction and when we look at things like alternate day feeding, that actually showed the highest amount of weight loss. Now, like I mentioned in the beginning, there's a big question there after that that should be asked, which is what kind of weight loss? So when we further explore that, the alternate day feeding, uh, you do lose more muscle and less fat when compared to the like caloric energy restriction approach. So if it's somebody who says, um, my, my goal is weight loss at all costs. You're going to probably lose more if you're not controlling calories strictly, you're just going about your day with these different approaches. The you're, you're likely going to lose more weight if you do like an alternate day feeding, but as most people are probably thinking they would prefer to lose weight, but preserve lean muscle mass, that is going to be most likely better done by just your kind of more basic caloric energy restriction, which would be like, all right, I tracked how much I'm eating at the weight I'm at, and it came out to X number. And if I reduce it by say, roughly 500 calories per day consistently over the course of X number of months, I'm going to lose X number of pounds, and then I'm going to get to my goal weight. At a certain time, if you do that approach, you're likely to preserve more of that lean mass uh, and lose more of that uh, non-lean mass through that process. The big question I think a lot of people end up asking themselves with this is often, well, which one of these can I actually stick to? Because if you're the type of person who's like, yeah, if I'm just asked to restrict my intake day after day after day, even if it's a small amount, I'm going to like, I'm going to goof that up and I'm not going to be able to stick to it. And for that person, then that maybe isn't their best approach, even though it is likely going to preserve more lean mass than say like an alternate day feeding type of a situation. And then also consider uh, that a lot of this research and a lot of these studies are like, you know, most of the ones that I've looked at, they'll, they'll say at the end, like, you know, there's more research that needs to be done here because there are just so many different things and different ways you could kind of design some of these studies to the point where, um, we don't always know, like in this context, what happens because anytime a study gets done that shows something, there's always probably more follow-up questions than answers to questions that got asked. And it tends to be kind of like, if if you're looking at it through an individual lens or through a very specific way of life, there's a lot less chance that it directly uh, shined a light on your specific approach. So um, considering what I talked about before in terms of like the protein totals and spacing and things like that can be uh, something to maybe consider, consider when you're thinking about just, you know, how you want to position that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing just to consider, and this just goes along with what I just said, which is you cannot make up for a protein deficit with future overfeeding the way you can with say other macronutrients. So the example I like to use here is like, if I went out and did a long run and I did it, I did it fasted and I didn't eat anything during it. I'm going to lose a certain amount of body fat during that. 
Now I can sit down in a meal right after that session, training session, that long run and eat an equivalent amount of fat that I lost and essentially come out at the end of the day, neither gaining or losing fat, even though in the very, very short term I did. And then in the very, very short term, I gained it right back. Muscle doesn't work the same way. If you, um, if you, uh, like say lose muscle or catabolize some muscle, uh, you can't just like overeat protein and then expect that to be like right back on you again, the way it would be with like body fat and things like that. So you do want to be kind of careful with that too, thinking along those lines. Like if you are going to do something like a single eating feeding session per day, you're not necessarily going to make up for muscle loss. If you just eat a ton of protein all in one sitting, the way you would maybe preserve some of that, if you spread it out, like I said before, and along the lines of that protein muscle synthesis, once you start fasting beyond eight hours, you do decrease this. So after eight hours, you do increase muscle breakdown potential. There are some studies that show that this hasn't happened or didn't happen in those particular studies, but you have to be kind of careful with some of these because you do have things that are not muscle that are lean, like water, for example, like if you water, that's, um, that's lean weight that you're losing. That's not like body fat. So if you find and look at the studies that are designed to kind of control as much as you can for things like this, that show that it's unlikely water loss differences between the two groups that they're studying, it does look like when you fast beyond eight hours, you do decrease muscle protein th synthesis and increase muscle breakdown in that kind of situation. Um, the other interesting thing about this is when we look at the alternate day fasting approach, um, you have this thing called non-exercise energy expenditure, which is essentially just the amount of movements that you sort of do involuntarily throughout the course of the day. And if you are doing an alternate day fasting approach, the research at this point in time would suggest that your body will subconsciously sort of downregulate those. So weird little things like blinking, twitching, um, just like, you know, maybe moving your legs around or your feet around randomly when you're not really thinking about it when you're just sitting there, just these, these goofy little things that you're not like consciously going out of your way to do. And it sounds like it's being consequential, but when we're talking about like days and weeks going on, on one after the other, uh, it can add up. So on this alternate day fasting approach, you do see a down regulation of that non-exercise energy expenditure. Uh, so something else to consider in terms of just like when you're, you know, some people, uh, are going to look at it through a lens of like, when I track my nutrition, if I hit this number on this type of day, I know I'll maintain weight. Therefore, this is the right amount of energy for me during this type of thing. Now, if you introduce something like an alternate fasting approach, that could change. Um, or the other way, if you're doing an alternate fasting approach and you've come up with a specific amount of energy intake that kind of keeps you um, at maintenance, and then all of a sudden you switch and notice, oh, now I'm actually starting to drop a little bit of weight. It could be because you're over a, probably a fairly meaningful amount of time, um, just adding a little more energy burn to the equation in terms of just like your body's use of energy over the course of the day through these weird little things um, that are non-exercise based and sort of subconscious. All right. So now let's jump into the actual impacts on performance with these approaches. So this is going to be a little more like um, along the lines of we're not looking at weight loss as a target. We're not necessarily looking at 
muscle preservation or muscle gain. We're looking at the effects of fasted versus fed state exercise uh, performance. Uh, so I did find a systemic review and meta-analysis that looked at um, both uh, aerobics exercise and anaerobic and intermittent exercise. So I looked at continuous aerobic exercise of both 60 minutes or less, and then also greater than 60 minutes. And then also looked at anaerobic and intermittent exercise. Intermittent exercise is just basically small sessions that are spread out throughout the course of the day versus going to the gym and just doing all your strength work in like a circuit or like just back-to-back -back lifts and things like that. And then being done with it until maybe the next day, or if you have a rest day after that, the day after that. So it's just like very short, but small doses of uh, more higher intensity stuff spread out throughout the day. And what they found was that continuous aerobic exercise, there's no difference in, in duration under 60 minutes. So if you're going out for a 60 minute or less run, and you decide you want to do that fasted, uh, you're not going to lose any performance. You're not going to potentially lose any performance on that comparative if you said eight before that. Um, but if you start to, if it starts to become prolonged, so it starts getting greater than 60 minutes, uh, eating something pre-session will bolster the aerobic capacity. So pre-fed is going to bolster aerobic capacity when it gets greater than 60 minutes. Um, when we look at anaerobic and intermittent exercise, though, there is no difference in short-term or long-term fasted versus fed state hit. So they're looking at high intensity interval training with this. Uh, few studies and a variety of protocols were used though. So like they define it as hit or anaerobic exercise or intermittent exercise. But when the studies are all kind of compiled, there's like a lot of different kind of approaches to it. So it can be kind of difficult to make definitive recommendations based on that. Uh, one of the interesting findings they did look at too, with I think it was maybe four of the studies, was that when you pre-feed, but you pre-feed three to four hours pre-exercise, performance did improve. And this could be a situation of just like muscle liver glycogen was increased. And then that was not, and that was not present when they had that really tight feeding window before of like less than 60 minutes for that pre-feeding. Another interesting thing they looked at was meal composition in regards to the the glycemic index or essentially how complex the carbohydrates or how quickly or slow they were released, um, which has a lot of debate along sports nutrition in general, especially when you get into these longer events. I've talked about this before in the past. It's like there's this variable of um, can you actually like, like tolerate having this food or this, uh, pre-exercise or intra-exercise fuel in your digestive tract to the capacity where it's actually aiding versus, uh, creating a situation in which you have distress and it's, it's not helping you. Or, um, if it is, it's helping you at a small enough degree that the distress is overshadowing that. But of those four studies, 75% determined that ingesting low to moderate, um, car like slower release carbohydrates pre-exercise did improve prolonged aerobic capacity compared to the fasting conditions, while the high uh, or the slow release carbohydrates did not enhance performance. So endurance performance may improve as a result of enhanced fat oxidation and slower glucose release when you have this like lower glycemic index carbohydrate ingestion. Um, 
possibly because it's preserving glycogen stores for the higher intensity stuff that you could be doing later. Um, just to summarize that meta-analysis in terms of kind of what I all talked about to kind of like wrap it all into kind of something in terms of what you can maybe take away from that. This was kind of the, the review's findings. They indicate that fasted versus fed exercise conditions differentially affect performance and post-exercise metabolism. Pre-exercise feeding enhances performance during prolonged greater than 60 minute aerobic exercise, whereas performance did not differ during shorter duration aerobic exercise between fasted and fed conditions. Several individual studies suggest that nutrient timing and meal composition influence exercise performance, and these factors should be tailored based on exercise type. Additionally, consuming lower GI compared with high GI carbohydrate may augment prolonged aerobic performance. Regarding metabolism, fasted exercise mobilizes and promotes free fatty acid utilization with seminal evidence outlining potential mechanisms by which this occurs in adipose tissue. Fasted training activates signaling pathways which beneficially regulate metabolic adaptations in skeletal muscle, whereas pre-exercise feeding abrogates such effects. However, significant literature gaps remain regarding this topic. Further research is imperative to elucidate the effect of fasted versus fat exercise on skeletal muscle and adipose tissue metabolism, particularly following a chronic intervention. Similarly, unconventional feeding conditions such as low-carbohydrate or protein-fed state have not been thoroughly investigated regarding their effects on metabolism and performance. Future studies are required to establish nutritional strategies which optimize metabolic and performance adaptations to exercise. So essentially, I love a few things that they're looking at here is like, for one, we're looking at things like carbohydrate type in terms of how that impacts your fat oxidation rates, as well as just the lack of any fuel source, which when you just think of it logically, like if you're not eating before a training session, uh, chances are you're going to increase your fat oxidation rates because your body's going to be asked to use that fuel source since you're not introducing a nutrient source exogenously that's going to take preferential or to take the front seat essentially to uh, being metabolized in that situation. Things that I think are going to be big follow-up questions to this type of stuff is just like, well, yeah, how does this change with longer term approaches? Like it said in that kind of review there where what about someone who's been on say a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet for a significant amount of time, like one to two years, how does that change in terms of things like that uh, quality of the session, uh, for like a lower intensity thing beyond 60 minutes. Um, you know, it would stand to reason if you are burning, if you have your higher fat oxidation rates, uh, especially at that, uh, at that intensity in which you are performing those, those aerobic sessions that, that time frame would get pushed out in terms of, uh, how long that would, uh, preserve the quality of that, of that session. Uh, I will link to that, uh, that article, or I'm sorry, that meta-analysis, which is just titled effects of fasted and fed state exercise on performance and post-exercise metabolism, a systematic review and meta-analysis to this, uh, episode show notes. So if you're interested in combing through it, um, feel free to do so. One other study that I wanted to look at because it did get published after that meta-analysis that I just went over, and I actually think it's maybe a little more direct to what David was asking, which is just time-restricted feeding 
protocols when it comes to endurance athletes. So this one was actually published in March of 2021. And I believe I actually had a guest reference this one a while back, like back when it first kind of came out or on a different episode, uh, because I remember this one being kind of an interesting one where they actually looked at the effects of an eight week time restricted eating pattern of 16, eight. So they did an eight hour eating window and they compared them to a group of, uh, of, um, endurance athletes for this particular study, it was male, middle and long distance runners to kind of see what happens with that approach versus the conventional eating framework that they had been doing before what that other group was doing. So for this particular study, and I'll, I'll link this one into the show notes as well. If people are interested in looking at it in more detail, but their purpose was eight weeks time-restricted eating in concert with habitual exercise training, investigating for effects of body composition, energy, and macronutrient intakes, indices of endurance running performance, and markers of metabolic health in endurance athletes. So they actually start out with 23 participants. It was 12 and 11 for 12 being with the time-restricted eating group, 11 with the conventional eating group. And when they got to the end of it all, they had 17 make it through 10 of which were from the time restricted eating group, seven from the conventional group. And what they ended up finding out is that um, with the 17 participants, uh, 10 being time restricted eating and seven being conventional, uh, completing the intervention, training load did not differ between groups for the duration of the intervention period. Time-restricted eating resulted in a reduction in body mass, and I think the mean difference was they dropped 1.92 kilograms, um, and the self-reported daily energy intake was lower in the time-restricted eating at the middle and post. So at four weeks and at eight weeks, they did report eating less, um, less total energy, which would make sense. If they were lo- losing weight, chances are they were... Uh, restricting whether it wasn't restricting in the same conventional sense as what we would have if it were from like that group that wasn't time restricted eating, just consciously taking in less energy. They just happen to take in less energy because of this protocol, um, which is going to be important for some people listening to this because some people are asking themselves about just what is going to be more likely for them to sustain. And if a rule like a 16, eight type of rule is, is going to get them the results they're looking for uh, without having to overthink it or not be able to adhere to it. That's an important variable to kind of consider. But yeah, self-reported daily energy intake was lower in the time-restricted eating at the middle and post. Uh, no effect of time-restricted eating was observed for oxygen consumption, respiratory exchange ratio, running economy, blood lactate concentrations, or heart rate during exercise, nor were there any effects on glucose, insulin, or triglyceride concentrations observed uh, with that group. So they concluded eight weeks of a 16-8 time-restricted eating in middle long-distance runners resulted in a decrease in body mass commensurate with the reduction in daily energy intake, but it did not alter indices of endurance running performance or metabolic health. So maybe that's a little more specific to what uh, you're looking at with um, with your goals with this sort of thing versus kind of what I went over with that meta-analysis and some of that, that other stuff just consider when it comes to all the variables that people maybe be considering, whether that be endurance, muscle gain preservation, um, acute workout quality, 
uh, intensity of that stuff. And then with this last article, maybe a lot of some of those endurance related variables bundled all into a context that uh, when combined, end up giving you what that conclusion meant. So like I said, I'll link that one of the show notes too. And just look at the other article, please reach out to me if you have any information that you find interesting to add to this or to counter any of the stuff that I talked about on here, because I'd love to see it. Finally, what would you take this information in terms of, let's say somebody who wants to do a time-restricted feeding approach and how would I personally try to use it the best way possible, given what some of these studies have suggested. So let's just say I'm doing a 16-8 protocol. That's probably where I would lean most heavily if I were to do it in terms of trying to maximize the amount of time you do have available to kind of check some of those boxes with both protein, making sure I get enough protein as well as protein muscle synthesis. Um, and then also maybe even leverage some of those feeding windows that we talked about there too. So what I would typically try to do if possible is when I had that eight hour eating window, I would try to place my, my priority training session somewhere within that window of time so that you're still getting some of the benefits from potentially the pre-feeding aspect of, uh, of the, what these studies suggest, uh, as well as potentially still that lifestyle that you're looking to kind of maintain and where you place it in there. I mean, ideally, I think if it were me, what I would, how I would structure it is I would probably put like two main meals for the day on either side of that eight hours. So like one in the beginning and one in the end and try to sandwich that quality training session for the day or, you know, your primary training session for the day, I should say as close to the middle as you can. Granted, there's going to be variables that impact that depending on where that window is and things like, you know, if you're, if you're doing a 16, a protocol and your eating window is at the second half of the day, um, you know, you're, you're going to essentially have to have your workout later in the day, which may not be a problem. It just probably depends on the person's schedule versus say someone who's going to have that eight hour eating window closer to the earlier part of the day, in which case, um, you know, you have to have the schedule to uh, properly do that. So like if you're doing, say, I'm going to start eating when I wake up in the morning and that's going to start my eight hour window, you know, who knows, depending on your work schedule, family obligations, everything else that goes into the lifestyle that you have, uh, is that even reasonable to be able to do, say, a workout right in the middle of that? Um, one that I could see working kind of, kind of well for that type of situation would be if you're someone who works out first thing in the morning, you could be, you could just start your feeding window when you wake up, have like small amount of uh, food before that training session, if it's beyond uh, 60 minutes. And obviously as the, the research indicated, if it's less than 60 minutes, or if it's something a little higher intensity, maybe not even a big issue in terms of, of doing that. Uh, you could still start that feeding window, get that workout in between that, in that eight hour of time frame, but just really close to the beginning of it and still capitalize on it. Uh, I think that's going to be the spot I would typically try to put it in order to preserve both performance and, and, and maybe even potentially uh, increase recovery time uh, from that session and kind of hitting some of those eating windows or hitting your eating windows like around that training session versus further away from it. And let me know if you see anything in there that I didn't talk about that you find interesting or you know, poke any holes in what I mentioned here, or if you have any follow-up information that you find interesting that would potentially um, add some context and nuance to this topic.
Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 